This month, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the English Standard Version, first published by Crossway in 2001. To help mark this milestone, we're releasing a number of fascinating interviews focused on the ESV and Bible translation. Today, we're pleased to share our final interview in this special series, a conversation with ESV Translation Oversight Committee member, Dr. Peter Williams, on translating the New Testament. Peter and I discuss the differences between modern English and biblical Greek, the trickiest books in the New Testament to translate, and Jesus' masterful and at times clever use of language in the Gospels. In addition to his work on the ESV Translation Oversight Committee, Peter is the principal of Tyndale House, an international center for research that specializes in the languages, history, and cultural context of the Bible, located in Cambridge, England. He also serves as chair of the International Greek New Testament Project and is the author of a number of books, including Can We Trust the Gospels from Crossway? Let's get started. Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway podcast. Great to be with you. Uh, So today we're going to talk about the dynamics of translating the New Testament into English. And you currently serve on the Translation Oversight Committee for the ESV. Uh, But before we get into that, what that role looks like, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about your current day job. Uh Uh-huh. So I... I, uh head up something called a Tyndale House in Cambridge. It's not the publisher in Illinois, but it's a research (laughs) center uh, in Cambridge set uh, amid the buildings of the university where we seek to study the Bible at the highest level, doctoral level and above um, in service of the global church. So people come from around the world and we have uh, Britain's best library of the Bible, one of the best in the world, where people come and uh, study and build each other up. And we also run projects out of that because when you've got an institute, you can actually carry out research projects. We produced a Greek New Testament with uh, Crossway and uh, other publishing and research projects we're involved in. Mm. So I get to uh, research and conceive of those projects, um, rub shoulders with brilliant people who uh, love uh, the Lord Jesus and also uh, uh, really study the scriptures at a very deep level, and I get to share that with people. So it's it's an exciting job I've got. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting. We often think about uh, kind of uh, Christian ministry and work uh, associated with evangelization and uh, kind of social work to help uh, practically help people who are suffering, uh, but there is a real value in some of the, you know, distinctly evangelical scholarship that you all are doing there uh, kind of on behalf of the church, ultimately. Uh, one other thing that you do is you serve on, as chair of the International Greek New Testament Project. I wonder if you could just summarize what's that all about? Yeah, so it's it's a, a very long-standing uh, project go- been going for most of a century to produce very high-level uh, critical editions of the New Testament uh, in uh, Greek and all of the surrounding transcriptions of manuscripts and so on. And it has had uh, strengths uh, both in the UK and the US and now much um, uh, more internationally than that. Um, uh, much uh, Many different institutions involved. It's uh, not a confessional work, so it, it draws together scholars from many different backgrounds. And um, lots and lots of, I mean, I, I dread to think of all, all the hours that are clocked up. Uh, in the different uh, <laughs> projects that come under the aegis of that. But uh, mm. whether it's editions of 
John in Greek or in Latin or in Syriac, all sorts of uh, scholarly work that's being done. And, and so, in fact, what's being done for the last 20 or 30 years is on John. And it will be the most thorough investigation of the manuscripts of any New Testament book ever. Hmm. Wow. Well, and so this kind of raises the the issue that, and I've heard people talk about you in this way, uh, that obviously this level of research and study into these ancient manuscripts and documents uh, requires such an awareness, such a familiarity of the biblical languages. Um, and I've heard tell that you know something like six or more different languages. Is that true? How many languages well, do you actually know? Let, let's put it this way. I'm looking up words in English all the time. <laughs> so I, I think th- that people can get a wrong sense of, um, of of what it is to know an ancient language. Of course, we, we don't know how to order an ice cream in an ancient language. We're not fluent. And you can look stuff up. And uh, the great thing is no one pronounced it well. Ancient people don't uh, criticize your pronunciation. And, <laughs> and so you can study these things in your own time. And also that they're really tools. So I think sometimes people have this idea that um, some biblical scholars are sort of quasi omniscient and they just know everything about the Bible. And mm. the truth is every single one of us is massively out of our depth. So even an absolutely top lawyer is going to ask colleagues for information on areas of law that they don't specialize in. And it's the same with the Bible. I mean, you just have to think about the maths. It's not quite as many as a million words in the Bible. But you think about each of those words, the manuscripts that copy uh, that, that, that hold them, thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament, thousands of the Old Testament. And that's just manuscripts without starting about every single archaeological artifact. And the, there are just so many uh, biblical scholars and there aren't... Um, no one can master that all. It's just not possible within a 70 or 80 year lifetime that might give you 40, 50 years study. You know, you know, if, if you got um, uh, been given the strength uh, by God to do that, to know all those sorts of things. And, and I think we need to dispel this myth that omniscience is a communicable attribute of God. It's absolutely not. Mm. And so we really got to um, uh, emphasize our ignorance a lot more. Yeah, that's really a helpful nuance, and I think you're right. It kind of dispels uh, sort of a myth that people, uh, lay people who, uh, it's all Greek to them, uh, literally, uh, that they are kind of uh, struggling with at times when they think about this. Uh, how, what impact has computer technology and the ability to uh, leverage the power of a computer and the internet, perhaps even, to understand these things? How has that impacted the work of a translator? Well, I mean, it, it's absolutely huge in terms of all of the information that you have uh, together. Um, there's been a culture shift, for instance, in the area of manuscripts, because nowadays um, every Tom, Dick and Harry, as we might say in, in Britain, has seen um, uh, pictures of manuscripts. So actually, it's not it's no longer an arcane thing that you have to go off to a library to do. Uh a lot more people are able to read the sorts of scripts you get in manuscripts. Hmm. So there have been uh, significant changes like that, the massive data, of course. But at the same time, it's too much data. Uh, So just as you can have um, so many different experts on a pandemic, uh, you can have so much just uh, overwhelming information on the Bible. It's very hard to process. And so Mm. one of the skills is also knowing what not to read as well as what to read. Um, And so uh, 
that's that's important. No, no biblical scholar nowadays is able to read all of the commentaries on um, a whole significant section of the Bible. People tend in some people uh, tend to get more and more specialised, so that you don't just specialise in Colossians; you specialise in a particular aspect of Colossians, and so on. Mm, wow. um, and of course, a Bible translator needs to do the whole thing. So whether it's uh, Jerome or William Tyndale didn't live uh, to uh, complete uh, most of the Old Testament, but you you have to have that overview, um, and um, I, th- I think that's important. Yeah. So how did you first get interested in the biblical languages? Uh, for many of us, uh, that's that does feel like a very foreign thing. We think the pastors and professors could do it, but what was it that first piqued your interest? Well, I've, I've been uh, blessed. I've only ever had a secular education, but I've had very good teachers in that and uh, two particularly inspiring teachers at uh, school, what you might say high school, where uh, I was able to start Latin at age 12 and start Greek at age 14. Hmm. Uh, and uh, I had particularly good teachers. Chemistry with them was good. Um, and, and so that got me thinking um, about uh, biblical languages uh, early on. I may have read, I'm not quite sure, but I, I may have read the entire New Testament in Greek before I went to university. So wow. it's one of those things where I then uh, did Hebrew and Aramaic at university. I'd wanted to become a Bible translator. Um, wasn't thinking about translating the Bible into English. Uh, but what, what um, were you planning at the time then? Yeah, well, I, I, I just wanted to be ready to translate the Bible for people who had not yet heard it. And then I, mm. I, I also saw later on there was a, a great need for biblical scholars. Um, so uh, that's, that's what I've tried to be. Yeah. So how did you first get connected then to the English Standard Version? So um, at Tyndale House, where a lot of the work on the ESV was done, uh, my predecessor leading the institution was Bruce Winter. He was on the ESV committee and so naturally connected uh, with the ESV uh, work there. And uh, when uh, Lane Dennis of Crossway invited me to join, I was delighted to do so. But it's been a relationship that's developed um, over a significant amount of time. So hmm. since the early 2000s, I'd say. Yeah, I wasn't on so the, the very first group uh, uh, that uh, produced the um, uh, version that came out in 2001, uh, but it's been involved since then. Yeah. And so then what, what actually has been your role then on the committee? I think many many of us lay people, we we kind of have a general sense for what a Bible translator does, but the details are very vague and fuzzy. So what what has your work actually looked like? Well, it's it's really worth over overviewing from 2001, 2006, 2010 or so, and, and, and uh, the, the 2016, um, where uh, uh, obviously the committee needs to meet before um, a somewhat slightly revised uh, uh, issue, let's say, rather than addition of the of the ESV comes out. And the um, difference between 2001 and, say, 2006 uh, is, is not great, but is greater than the difference between any other subsequent issue because mm. uh, things are being more settled on. And there's a certain amount in which the obviously the style sheet and the basic principles of translation have to be decided beforehand. Um, and one could say that ESV also aims not to be a weird translation. It aims to be a translation that stands in the tradition uh, from William Tyndale onwards. 
Uh, and so th- the great thing is that some some of the ESV committee decisions got made uh, centuries ago uh, mm. when people wrestled with how to uh, translate something. Now, sometimes the English language has changed and you need, therefore, to ch- uh, change the English equivalent, but sometimes it hasn't. Um, and, and so that's where it's possible um, uh, to do that. So uh, you, you can take a, a case like Fishers of Men, where it's very interesting that, of course, Fishers um, was the old word. Uh, then Fishermen became more common. Um, uh, and actually, Fishers is coming back now as people are uh, thinking, well, we shouldn't just have a word that says men uh, hmm. in, in there. And it's actually a very good equivalent of, of the um, of the Greek. But you have to think about so many different factors. You have to think about how it sounds. Um, you have to think uh, 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 about uh, the obviously the rendering of the original so that people are having some transparency uh, to that. You have to think about any misunderstandings people could get. Um, so there, there are lots of different factors that come to an intuitive committee decision about how to translate something and of course sometimes one gets outvoted uh so with 12 or so people on a committee uh everyone on that committee has known what it's like to be in a minority of one against mm. 11 or so maybe with some extent abstentions or so and that, that's a good humbling experience and also stops our personal um oddities uh, making their way in into the translation. That's one of the great things about translating as a committee. Hmm, yeah, that's so helpful. I, I think that dispels maybe some of the misconceptions we often have about the work of a translator or translator committee, uh, namely that it's it's a pure science. There's it's kind of a, a clear right answer every single time. That there's no kind of art to the, the work of a translator. But would you say that's that's not the case? There is there is a <laughs> real subjective art to the work. Absolutely. Uh, and that, that's why it requires a, a level of experience uh, and uh, knowledge with this. Um, and uh, translation um, does involve compromise. It's, it's not in any way uh, demeaning translation uh, to say that. You have to choose between different factors. So, for instance, when you're translating Psalm 119 and it's got alliteration beginning each verse uh, with uh, a, a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, we don't render that uh, into English because it it just wouldn't work. We've got mm. 26 letters in our alphabet. They've got 22 in theirs. I mean, it could be done, but you would end up having to pay a very heavy price in other aspects of the translation. And so that's where you have to decide um, what you're, you're going to do. Uh, another uh, good example in Genesis is where it says, of Eve, she'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. And thankfully, the English words do a lot of the work for us. Woman and man are related as the Hebrew words are related. And so we don't, it's it sort of the translation naturally falls out. Um, whereas um, uh, in a different language, one might have to do more work. Poor Jerome had vir or weir for, for man and virago. Uh, for the woman, which wasn't at all a natural word to use, but he wanted to bring out that wordplay. Mm. So yeah. um, it, it, it depends. Uh, so, yeah. Sometimes wordplay will come out, sometimes it won't. So that's actually a nice segue into another thing I wanted to talk about, which was just the 
the differences between Greek, ancient Greek, and modern English. And I, I wonder if you could unpack that for us. What are some of the big differences there and how they would compare to one another? Well, I suppose first I'd like to say they're not that different. I mean, at one level, there are differences between every language, between British and American English. We may be using the same words and meaning some uh, slightly different things. And there's just oodles of nuance uh, between different um, uh, languages. And, and yet at the same time, in global terms, Greek and English are part of the same Indo-European family. There will be certain things that align between them. Uh, and that's uh, important. Uh, so... That's that's a bit of a gift. It sometimes allows us to replicate one to one equivalents uh, between Greek and English in a way that would be really quite hard uh, with if you were going to some of the Papua New Guinean languages that might have a very different structure. Hmm. So um, I think it's worth recognizing um, that. And of course, there are some words where um, the English word comes from the Greek word. Um, so uh, that's also um, a, a a benefit. Um, so th- there's a lot of one-to-one equivalence that, that that can be achieved. At the same time, there are all sorts of differences. The way the tense system works in in Greek is is a a bit different, um, and, and so we, we we're going to have to take that into account. A lot of the words will have uh, different nuances, but that's the same between every language. And, and a word you can sometimes think of as, um, well, it's not quite like a suitcase that carries everything about it to everywhere it goes. It's more that in certain contexts, different aspects of a word come out. Mm. Um, and, and, and so we could think of a word like text, which in the sense of text message is 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 different from uh, today's text is when someone begins a sermon. And so it's those different nuances that will come out and they won't entirely overlap uh, with the English ones. And so the translators have to make some choices. Are we going to um, be consistent in rendering this word the same way every single time? Or are we going to vary a bit? Um, and, Mm. And so that's what we have to do. So, so what would you say if there was a kind of a default posture on that question with the Translation Oversight Committee for the ESV, when the same word is being used in multiple spots, say, in the New Testament? Well, uh, um, uh, the way I'd look at it is, is you think about um, a diet. You don't want to put on too much weight, but you do like a bit of sugar and you do like this coffee and you do like that. And I think you're, you're, there are different desirables and you start your day as a translator with a number of different res- desirables. One of them will be you would love to achieve a transparent equivalence between your translation and um, what you're rendering, because that is really saying, let translators get out of the way, let the Bible readers come in and and more or less see how uh, the original works. Uh, And that would be an ideal. But there might be some times when that's really not going to work. And and so um, that's where you you have some some trade-offs. So I think that's, that's the sort of way I'd look at it. So you've you've also done a lot of apologetics work related mm-hmm. to the reliability of the Bible and the New yep. Testament in particular. Uh, you've had multiple debates with Bart Ehrman, kind of one of the leading uh, critics of uh, an, an evangelical view of the Bible, and you've even written a book with Crossway called "Can We Trust the Gospels?" 
Um, we did a whole interview about that topic a couple years back. So if anyone's interested in that, uh, go check out that interview. Uh, but, but central to what a skeptic like Ehrman would claim is that when you actually read the New Testament in the original Greek and Aramaic and look at all the different manuscripts, uh, you start to see real problems. You see real inconsistencies that maybe call into question ideas like inspiration and inerrancy. So I wonder, as someone who is a Bible scholar who we've established understands these languages very well, has spent hours uh, immersed in these languages, how would you respond to a, a fundamental claim like that? So I think we've got to put things in perspective. So uh, Bart Ehrman has not done an edition of the New Testament, but he has edited some early Christian texts, such as the Apostolic Fathers. Uh, And I would just say that if you look at the way he edits a text and you apply and you extrapolate that to how he would edit the, the Greek New Testament, the Greek New Testament would not be very different from the crossway Greek New Testament, uh, you know, um, uh, produced at Tinder House. It, it really wouldn't. So I think you can rhetorically talk up stuff as if it's big, but we're really not talking about big stuff. Mm. And we're not talking about anything that isn't in modern footnotes. I mean, uh, modern translations typically will have a footnote at the end of Mark and in the middle of John about the woman caught in adultery, where they will say that the earliest manuscripts don't have these passages. That's not a surprise. And yet the amazing thing is you can still sell books saying, wow, shock, horror, uh, discovery. You know what? These passages (laughs) are not in the earliest manuscripts. And and, and as if people don't know this. Um, Mm. So Uh, the ESV has been issued in tens of millions, perhaps hundreds of millions of copies with footnotes at the bottom saying about manuscript variations. So think about this, that Crossway has issued many, many hundreds of millions of footnotes uh, that have gone around the world, uh, possibly billions of footnotes, I would guess, um, uh, which have actually each of them said there is some difference in the manuscript. So it's not as if Christians are trying to hide this and uh, other publishers likewise um, have been doing similar things. This is not this is not a secret, um, but it's also not a, a, an excessively big deal. That is, if you talk to a Christian from the 4th or 5th century or from the 15th century, they would know there are differences between manuscripts. This is not something which can overturn Christianity because, after all, um, St. Augustine knew it and he was a convinced Christian. Jerome knew it. Um, this is this is not something which has any way been seen as um, a falsification of Christianity until probably the 20th century when people turned up and thought, oh, wow, this proves everything false. Uh, And it's extraordinary, really, uh, that this is going on. So you have to ask, why is that going on? And I think there is this inverse relationship that's gone on, where as our knowledge of the New Testament manuscripts has got more detailed, and actually as the gap between our earliest manuscripts and the time of the New Testament has got smaller, doubts have arisen. So in other words, the doubts are inversely proportional to the evidence. Mm. Uh, as more evidence is uncovered, uh, doubt goes up, which just shows you that doubts aren't to do with evidence. Yeah. So then how would you explain that inverse relationship? It, you know, It would seem like our doubt should be, uh, we should be getting more confident in uh, the reliability of the New Testament. Yeah, the well, I think it's, it's, it's sometimes it's a bit like if you spend 
too much time telling people that they're really, really good, uh, that they will actually get quite insecure uh, uh, about, about that. Uh, they'll just grow to need uh, that reassurance. And, and there are these sorts of um, strange inverse relationships. But I, I think, obviously, um, the West in the last couple of centuries has uh, increased in its doubt about the Bible. But those have been exactly the centuries when stunning things have been discovered. I mean, uh, Calvin, four or more centuries ago, could hardly have imagined that the ancient Assyrian Empire, things from that would be dug up and the kings and their actual inscriptions we found and deciphered and they would be found to be in the right place. So when people trusted the Bible at the time of the Reformation, um, they couldn't have imagined people digging stuff up and it exactly fitting with the level of detail we have. Now, I know there's all sorts of debates about biblical archaeology, and, and that will always be the case. Um, and experts will line up to say it does or doesn't align with, with scripture and, and, and so on. Um, but at the broad picture, it's really stunning that anything has been discovered at all. And yet quite a few Israelite kings, their names have turned up outside the Bible in the right time period and so on. Uh, so there is this thing about doubt that it isn't really connected to evidence. Mm, yeah. So you mentioned a few minutes ago the Tyndall House Greek New Testament, uh, published in 2017. You served as co-editor alongside Dirk Youngkind on that project. I wonder if you could speak to the effect that that project has had on you as you think about translating the Greek into English. Has that yeah. you know, changed how you would approach that in any way? Well, it, it has, I mean, in, in, in a nuanced way, in, in the sense that it's not a radical change. It's more of a uh, maturing, I suppose, perhaps a, a violinist might uh, mature in their rendition of the same piece over 20 years. Um, and I, I think that can happen as you revisit some of these old questions. So I had the privilege of spending a lot of two years uh, 2015 and 2016, just reading the New Testament again and again in different manuscripts. And I was particularly looking at spelling and looking at accentuation. Um, but even doing that, uh, just um, the level of contact with the the physical copies means that I now think entirely in terms of those. Um, and it's quite important just to... Um, get a sense of, of, of antiquity and um, how things have been done differently in the past. And yes, when you copied something in the past, well, what would you write on? You might write on papyrus, you might write on leather. Um, you need to get it from somewhere. Who does it? How often do you ring your pen? All those sorts of questions, uh, which we don't think about in text production today. Hmm, yeah. So what, what would you say is one of the trickiest New Testament books or maybe even passages to translate into English. I do think that Second Corinthians is quite tough um, because of the um, th the a level of um, complex emotion that you might be trying to uh, render that can often seem a little bit abstract to people who are distanced from um, well uh, the situation that Paul was in in relation to the Corinthians. Um, so I think that that can be a, a tricky one. Um, and then John, which is the simplest one at one level, it's got the least uh, smallest vocabulary that can be difficult because 
um, it's often speaking at two levels simultaneously. So sometimes when Jesus is talking about his father, the audience is understanding him to be talking about a human father and he's talking about divine father. And uh, these sorts of things can work at different levels, uh, all sorts of in John's gospel, often the physical represents the spiritual as well. And then the translator has to decide which of these two levels am I going to privilege? Which 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 am I going to prioritize? And you have to decide that with capital letters as well. Uh, and so uh, are we going to say, uh, put a capital F for father here, because that's the expectation nowadays. So I think these these are... Um, a different sort of complexity. Hmm, yeah. What would you say is a favorite section of the New Testament for you to read in the original Greek? Um, well, I am currently writing a book on largely on Luke chapter 15, uh, the parable of the two sons, which is just absolutely stunning. Um, so you call it the and, parable of the two sons and not the, the parable of the prodigal son. Well, there that? are two sons in the parable. Okay, the prodigal is is sixty two percent, and the other one's thirty eight percent of the of the parable. Um, the <laughs> other issue uh, we we have is what went wrong for the younger son, and I would say it's a combination of his decisions to waste his money, plus what is often missed. There's a severe famine. If he had made those bad decisions and there wasn't a severe famine. Um, then what would have happened? So I would say he is prodigal plus unlucky. Um, and mm. that's an important aspect of the parable because an older brother who is looking at how they've got everything right and their younger brother has messed it up tends not to think about the famine. As far as the older brother's concerned, the younger brother has wasted the uh, his livelihood with prostitutes. Not that the older brother knows that because it's not that the younger brother has been sending postcards saying he's down at the brothel or anything <laughs> like that. So uh, he, he completely factors out the, uh, the, the famine, which is a significant thing there. Um, so I would, I'd want to say that often people who are poor through their bad decisions are not entirely poor through their bad decisions. They may be poor from bad decisions plus bad luck. Uh, you know, and I, obviously I don't believe anything's completely by chance but th there is this thing that that he happened out of to his choose the country which happened to have a famine it's the only country it was a famine in the land he happened to choose well that's pretty unlucky so mm. i think uh it, it it's a it's a very nuanced parable uh and very interesting for parable for that reason and, and it challenges some of the um uh ideas uh, that we might want to have judging uh, him uh, at the same time as not letting him off and saying, you know, he hasn't sinned. No, he has. Hmm. This ties in directly with something I wanted to, to raise with you. So you are uh, one of the things that I think you're fairly well known for, at least uh, in our online space, uh, are these kinds of uh, Twitter threads that you create that do exactly what you just did. They often are kind of unpacking and exploring in a different way maybe well-known biblical stories, sometimes very obscure biblical stories that we, we maybe would read and have no idea what to do with. We don't know how to make sense of them. They seem very bizarre to us. And you pull in a lot of these insights, uh, often drawn from the actual biblical language itself. 
and help us to understand what's going on there. And I've just consistently found them to be fascinating, but also, uh, to be honest, quite spiritually edifying at times. I wonder if you could just speak to that. When did you first start doing those? And broadly speaking, what would you say is your goal in these these long threads that you'll post? Yes. Well, I, I, I've not been doing threads recently because I've been writing a book. So... Uh, <laughs> Don't want to um, give away all the good material. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and also, you've only got a, li- a limited number of, of, of these threads uh, in, in your mind. But um, what I'd be trying to do is, I mean, Twitter can be a bit of a, a cesspool uh, of, of insults. <laughs> and I think uh, it is possible for us to say, no, we can be, we can use this platform very positively. Uh, in, in some ways, Twitter can be a great place for poetry now by poetry i mean when you have to a a character limit like that you have to concentrate and shape the wording very carefully Uh, and so um that can be used for that purpose it can be used to build up to edify there are various people who use it that way and um so that that's one thing I, I would uh, aspire to do. And the other thing is to democratize that some people think, well, this is only insight that's available for people who've um, studied in particularly obscure ways. And actually, Jesus's exhortation is let the one who has ears to hear, hear. And when I st- when I talk about um, these things, often they're things that are quite available in an English translation, and you can use multiple English translations to t- sort of triangulate to get, see what's going on. And it really is a question of slowing down. So for me, mm. reading in Greek, reading in other languages is often just a, a great opportunity to slow down and um, uh, read more carefully. Because I, I, the danger is with so many of the, the, the better known stories is we think we know them. And so when they're going on in church, we literally switch off. I, I just know that story. You know, the Titanic sinks, the prodigal son gets welcomed back with open arms. So just <laughs> what, what, what more is there to say? And actually, there's a huge amount more to say. Um, so I, th- I think that's where um, with some of these, I, I'd like to say, let's really slow down and think about just how shocking some of this is. Hmm. Well, and part of the slowing down there, at least to me, is is also maybe a greater realization of the the literary mastery that's in the biblical text. I think so often we can approach the Bible uh, because we believe it's inspired and inerrant and for our spiritual edification. We can almost view it as a a spiritual handbook of sorts or uh, just a unique case that then wouldn't have some of the literary qualities that we might often ascribe to a, a great poet that we would yeah. that we would love and read. Um, do, do you sense that dynamic where that's part of why we don't always analyze or pay attention to the text like we should? Absolutely. And I think there's a particular thing that we um, do not think of Jesus being clever. Um, so um, people tend to think of Jesus as being um miraculous in a sort of marvel hero sense you know having um <laughs> special abilities um uh, but they don't think of him as clever um uh, in the sense of of um the insight that he has and even the way he tells stories and i think this is a big problem because he is the word of god incarnate um the one who uh, from whom all language um the, the whole idea of language comes from him. Mm, um, and, wow. and so it, it's to, to think that he would not have mastery of language and have a lot to teach us about how to use language. Um, I think it is uh, missing a lot. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Peter, thank you so much for taking some time today to talk with us about uh, the New Testament and the work of a translator. Uh, it's fascinating and a really helpful way to uh, kind of clear away perhaps some misconceptions that we often have about that work. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you. That was Peter Williams on Translating the New Testament. To learn more about the English Standard Version, we invite you to visit esv.org translation. To find the ESV Bible edition that's right for you, visit crossway.org Bibles. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.